0: You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Neil Gaiman. This program originally aired in 2011.
1: The the best thing about having a house band um, is I got to listen to them while signing my way through 500 copies of (laughs) American Gods and a stack of graveyard books and, and various other things in the back, and it was enormously fun, because I was singing along. <laughs> they didn't know. <laughs> but I was. They'd go through Blame It On Cain by Elvis Costello, and they, they played it so many times that by the end, I got the lyrics right. <laughs> and... So thank you for coming out on a wet evening to... Oh, good. Um, to what has to be one of the most beautiful theatres I've ever had the honour of talking. About. And uh, I was sitting backstage, probably ten minutes before going on. Everything today—today today was one of those days when planes don't take off and then they don't land and once they have landed very 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 nice limo drivers don't quite know how to get from hotels to music halls Uh, and so you see so much more of Portsmouth than ever you'd wanted to. Do you know you have a submarine? You must know you have a submarine. Uh, <laughs> um, yes, it's the Albacore. <laughs> which is a Amer- very American God sort of thing. There's, there's, I was asked last night um, during an interview about whether or not... Um, I felt having lived in America for longer, and also just the, the nature of the world, whether the strangeness that I was writing about in American Gods had gone away. Um, and I was saying, no, it, it really hasn't. You know, you you it tends to go away for people in a certain location, obviously. You know, when I when I moved from England to America, to a small town in the Midwest, I would say to them. Don't you think it's strange that you park a car on the ice? And then you take bets on when it's going to go through the ice in the spring. And they'd look at me as if I was mad. And I'm sure for everyone around here, the idea that you have a large submarine parked in a ditch, surrounded by concrete is... Absolutely normal, know. of course we do. Yeah, that's the albacore call. What are you talking about? Doesn't everybody have a submarine? It <laughs> can't be a proper town it doesn't have a submarine. You know. um, so I was out back, and Tricia, who did that wonderful introduction, um, said, now, you know how t- this evening will go, don't you? And I said, no, I, I don't. And she said, well, you'll get out there and you'll talk for 25 minutes. You'll do do 25 minutes of talking and reading, and then we'll do the interview. She said, now, what are you gonna do for your 25 minutes? I don't know if anybody here has ever had one of those dreams where you turn up at school for an examination and you're wandering around, probably not wearing any trousers, going, I left school 30 years ago, I haven't, I honestly haven't revised for this, and they're saying, no, you'll do fine, but your entire future and life depends on it, just do the exam. But it was one of those dreams. Um, So I picked a few bits from American Gods that I thought I would read, and uh, they're I don't know that they're particularly representative because I don't know that anything is very representative of this book. It's a big, maundering book with an awful lot in it that goes to a lot of different places. Um, And the first bit I wanted to read, I wanted to read because it's almost local. And it's called Coming to America, 813 AD. All the way through *American Gods*, which is a big book about gods in America, are uh, well—it is um, are little short stories that expand the story and try and shed light on the process of coming to America. And this was the first one that I wrote, and the first one in the book. They navigated the green sea by the stars and by the shore. And when the shore was only a memory and the night sky was overcast and dark, they navigated by faith. And they called on the All Father to bring them safely to land once more. A bad journey they had of it, their fingers numb and with a shiver in their bones that not even wine could burn off. They would wake in the morning to see that the rime had frosted their beards, And until the sun warmed them, they looked like old men, white-bearded before their time. Teeth were loosening, and eyes were deep sunken in their sockets when they made landfall on the green land to the west. The men said, we are far, far from our homes and our hearts, far from the seas we know and the lands we love. Here, on the edge of the world, we will be forgotten by our gods." Their leader clambered to the top of a great rock, and he mocked them for their lack of faith. The All Father made the world, he shouted. He built it with his hands from the shattered bones and the flesh of Ymir, his grandfather. He placed Ymir's brains in the sky as clouds, and his salt blood became the seas that we crossed. If he made the world, do you not realize that he created this land as well? And if we die here as men, shall we not be received into his hall? And the men cheered and laughed. They set to with a will to build a hall out of split trees and mud inside a small stockade of sharpened logs, although as far as they knew they were the only men in the new land. On the day that the hall was finished, there was a storm. The sky at midday became as dark as night, and the sky was rent with forks of white flame, and the thunder crashes were so loud that the men were almost deafened by them, and the ship's cat that they brought with them for good fortune hid beneath the beached longboat. The storm was hard enough and vicious enough that the men laughed and clapped each other on the back and they said, the thunderer is here with us in this distant land and they gave thanks and rejoiced and they drank until they were reeling. In the smoky darkness of their hall that night, the bard sang them the old songs. He sang of Odin the All-Father, who was sacrificed to himself as bravely and as nobly as others were sacrificed to him. He sang of the nine days that the All-Father hung from the world tree, his side pierced and dripping from the spear point. At this point, his song became for a moment a scream. And he sang them all the things the All-Father had learned in his agony, nine names and nine runes and twice nine charms. When he told them of the spear piercing Odin's side, the bard shrieked in pain as the Allfather himself had called out in his agony, and all the men shivered, imagining his pain. They found the Skraeling the following day, which was the Allfather's own day. He was a small man, his long hair black as a crow's wing, his skin the color of rich red clay. He spoke in words none of them could understand, not even their bard who had been on a ship that had sailed through the pillars of Hercules, and who could speak the trader's pigeon men spoke all across the Mediterranean. The stranger was dressed in feathers and in furs, and there were small bones braided into his long hair. They led him into their encampment, and they gave him roasted meat to eat and strong drink to quench his thirst. They laughed riotously at the man as he stumbled and sang, at the way his head rolled and lolled, and this on less than a drinking horn of mead. They gave him more drink, and soon enough he lay beneath the table with his head curled under his arm. Then they picked him up, a man at each shoulder, a man at each leg, carried him at shoulder height, the four men making him an eight legged horse and they carried him at the head of a procession to an ash tree on the hill overlooking the bay, But they put a rope around his neck and hung him high in the wind, their tribute to the Allfather, the Gallows Lord. The Skraling's body swung in the wind, his face blackening, his tongue protruding, his eyes popping, his penis hard enough to hang a leather helmet on, while the men cheered and shouted and laughed, proud to be sending their sacrifice to the heavens. And the next day, when two huge ravens landed upon the Skraling's corpse, one on each shoulder, and commenced to peck at its cheeks and eyes, the men knew that their sacrifice had been accepted. It was a long winter, and they were hungry, but they were cheered by the thought that when spring came, they would send the boat back to the Northlands, and it would bring settlers and bring women. As the weather became colder and the days became shorter, some of the men took to searching for the Skraling village, hoping to find food and women. They found nothing save for the places where fires had been, where small encampments had been abandoned. One midwinter's day, when the sun was as distant and cold as a dull silver coin, they saw that the remains of the Scrailing's body had been removed from the ashtray. That after, Did I say ashtray? <laughs> I did. <laughs> By the magic of radio, I'm going to read this again, and I hope that when it gets broadcast, I'll get it right. <laughs> One midwinter's day, when the sun was as distant and cold as a dull silver coin, they saw that the remains of the Skraling's body had been removed from the ashtray. That afternoon, it began to snow, in huge slow flakes. The men from the Northlands closed the gates of their encampment, retreated behind their wooden wall. The Scrailing War Party fell upon them that night, 500 men to 30. They climbed the wall and over the following seven days they killed each of the 30 men in 30 different ways and the sailors were forgotten by history and their people. The wall they tore down. And the village they burned. The longboat upside down and pulled high on the shingle they also burned, hoping that the pale strangers had but one boat, and that by burning it they were ensuring that no other Northmen would come to their shores. It was more than a hundred years before Leif the Fortunate, son of Eric the Red, rediscovered that land, which he would call Vinland. His gods were already waiting for him when he arrived. Tear, one-handed, and gray Odin gallows god, and Thor of the thunders. They were there. They were waiting. So in a book about America, and about its gods, I thought I should probably do a story about the very first people to come to America. And this story is called Coming to America, 14,000 BC. Cold it was, and dark, when the vision came to her, For in the far north daylight was a gray, dim time in the middle of the day that came and went and came again, an interlude between darknesses. They were not a large tribe, as these things were counted then, nomads of the northern plains. They had a god who was the skull of a mammoth and the hide of a mammoth fashioned into a rough cloak. Nanyanini, they called him. When they were not traveling, he rested on a wooden frame at man-height. She was the holy woman of the tribe, the keeper of its secrets, and her name was Atsula the Fox. Atsula walked before the two tribesmen, who carried their god on long poles, draped with bearskins, skins that it should not be seen by profane eyes, nor at times when it was not holy. They roamed the tundra with their tents. The finest of the tents was made of caribou hide, and it was the Holy Tent, and there were four of them inside it. Atsula, the priestess, Gugwe, the tribal older, Yanu, the war leader, and Kalanu, the scout. She called them there the day after she had her vision. Atsula scraped some lichen into the fire, and she threw in dried leaves with her withered left hand. They smoked with an eye-stinging gray smoke and gave off an odor that was sharp and strange. Then she took a wooden cup from the wooden platform and she passed it to Gugwe. The cup was half filled with a dark yellow liquid. Atsula had found the pung mushrooms, each with seven spots. Only a true holy woman could find a seven-spotted mushroom and had picked them at the dark of the moon and dried them on a string of deer cartilage. Yesterday, before she slept, she had eaten the three dried mushroom caps. Her dreams had been confused and fearful things, Of bright lights moving fast of rock mountains filled with lights spearing upward like icicles. In the night she had woken, sweating, and needing to make water. She squatted over the wooden cup and filled it with her urine. Then she placed the cup outside the tent in the snow and returned to sleep. When she woke, she picked the lumps of ice out from the wooden cup, as her mother had taught her, leaving a darker, more concentrated liquid behind. It was this liquid she passed around the skin tent, first to Gugwe, and to Yanu and to Kalanu. Each of them took a large gulp of the liquid. Then Atsula took the final draught. She swallowed it and poured what was left on the ground in front of their god, a libation to Nanyanini. They sat in the smoky tent, waiting for their god to speak. Outside, in the darkness, the wind wailed and breathed. Kalanu, the scout, was a woman who dressed and walked as a man. She'd even taken Delani, a 14-year-old maiden, to be her wife. Kalanu blinked her eyes tightly. Then she got up and walked over to the mammoth skull. She pulled the mammoth hide cloak over herself and stood so her head was inside the mammoth skull. "'There is evil in the land,' said Nanyanini. "'Evil, such that if you stay here in the land of your mothers and your mothers' mothers, you shall all perish.' The three listeners grunted. Is it the slavers or the great wolves? Asked Gugwe, whose hair was long and white and whose face was as wrinkled as the gray skin of a thorn tree. It is not the slavers, said Nanyanini, old stone hide. It is not the great wolves. Is it a famine? Is famine coming? Asked Gugwe. Nanyanini was silent. Kalanu came out of the skull and waited with the rest of them. Gugwe put on the mammoth-hide cloak and put his head inside the skull. "'It is not a famine as you know it,' said Nanyanini through Gugwe's mouth. "'Although a famine will follow.' "'Then what is it?' asked Yanu. "'I am not afraid. I will stand against it. "'We have spears and we have throwing rocks. "'Let a hundred mighty warriors come against us. "'Still we shall prevail.' We shall lead them into the marshes and split their skulls with our rocks. It is not a man thing, said Nanyanini in Gugwe's old voice. It will come from the skies and none of your spears or your rocks will protect you. How can we protect ourselves? asked Atsula. I've seen flames in the skies. I have heard a noise louder than 10 thunderbolts. I have seen forests flattened and rivers boil. Aye, said Nanyanini. But he said no more. Gugwe came out of the skull, bending stiffly, for he was an old man, and his knuckles were swollen and knotted. There was silence. Atsula threw more leaves on the fire, and the smoke made their eyes tear. Then Yanu strode to the mammoth hide, put the cloak about his broad shoulders, put his head inside the skull. His voice boomed. You must journey, said Nanyanini. You must travel to sunward. Where the sun rises, there you will find a new land where you will be safe. It will be a long journey. The moon will swell and empty, die and live twice, and there will be slavers and beasts. But I shall guide you and keep you safe if you travel toward the sunrise." Atsula spat on the mud of the floor and said, no. She could feel the god staring at her. No. She said, you're a bad god to tell us this. We will die. We will all die. And then who will be left to carry you from high place to high place, to raise your tent, to oil your great tusks with fat? The god said nothing. Atsula and Yanu exchanged places. Atsula's face stared out through the yellowed mammoth bone. Atsula has no faith, said Nanyanini in Atsula's voice. Atsula shall die before the rest of you enter the new land, but the rest of you shall live. Trust me, there is a land to the east that is manless. This land shall be your land and the land of your children and your children's children for seven generations and seven sevens. But for Atsula's faithlessness, you would have kept it forever. In the morning, pack your tents and your possessions and walk toward the sunrise. In Gugwe, Yanu and Kalanu bowed their heads and exclaimed at the power and wisdom of Nanyanini. The moon swelled and waned and swelled and waned once more. The people of the tribe walked east toward the sunrise, struggling through the icy winds which numbed their exposed skin. Nanyanini had promised them truly. They lost no one from the tribe on the journey, save for a woman in childbirth. and women in childbirth belonged to the moon not to Nanyanini. They crossed the land bridge. Kalanu had left them at first light to scout the way. Now the sky was dark and Kalanu had not returned, but the night sky was alive with lights, knotting and flickering and winding, flux and pulse, white and green and red and violet. Atsula and her people had seen the northern lights before, but they were still frightened by them, and this was a display like they had never seen before. Kalanu returned to them as the lights in the sky formed and flowed. Sometimes, she said to Atsula, I feel that I could simply spread my arms and fall into the sky. That is because you are a scout, said Atsula, the priestess. When you die, you shall fall into the sky and become a star to guide us as you guide us in life. There are cliffs of ice to the east, high cliffs, said Kalanu, her raven black hair worn long as a man would wear it. We can climb them, but it will take many days. You shall lead us safely, said Atsula. I shall die at the foot of the cliff, and that shall be the sacrifice that takes you into the new lands." To the west of them, back in the lands from which they had come, where the sun had set hours before, there was a flash of sickly yellow light, brighter than lightning, brighter than daylight, a burst of pure brilliance that forced the folk on the land bridge to cover their eyes and spit and exclaim. Children began to wail. That is the doom that Nanyanini warned us of, said Gugwai the old. Surely he is a wise god and a mighty one. He is the best of all gods, said Kalanu, in our new land we shall raise him up on high and we shall polish his tusks and skull with fish oil and animal fat and we shall tell our children and our children's children and our seventh children's children that Nanyanini is the mightiest of all gods and shall never be forgotten. Gods are great, said Atsula, slowly, as if she were comprehending a great secret. But the heart is greater For it is from our hearts they come, and to our hearts they shall return. And there is no telling how long she might have continued in this blasphemy had it not been interrupted in a manner that brooked no argument. The roar that erupted from the west was so loud that ears bled that they could hear nothing for some time, temporarily blinded and deafened, but alive, knowing that they were luckier than the tribes to the west of them. It is good said Atsula, but she could not hear the words inside her head. Atsula died at the foot of the cliffs when the spring sun was at its zenith. She did not live to see the new world, and the tribe walked into those lands with no holy woman. They scaled the cliffs and they went south and west until they found a valley with fresh water and rivers that teemed with silver fish and deer that had never seen man before and was so tame it was necessary to spit and to apologize to their spirits before killing them. Delani gave birth to three boys, and some said that Kalanu had performed the final magic and could do the man thing with her bride, while others said that old Gugwe was not too old to keep a young bride company when her husband was away. And certainly once Gugwe died, Delani had no more children. And the ice times came, and the ice times went. And the people spread out across the land and formed new tribes and chose new totems for themselves, ravens and foxes and ground sloths and great cats and buffalo, each a taboo beast that marked a tribe's identity, each beast a god. The mammoths of the new lands were bigger and slower and more foolish than the mammoths of the Siberian plains. And the pung mushrooms with their seven spots were not to be found in the new lands. And Nanyanini did not speak to the tribe any longer. And in the days of the grandchildren of Delani and Kalanu's grandchildren, a band of warriors, members of a big and prosperous tribe, returning from a slaving expedition in the north to their home in the south, found the valley of the first people. They killed most of the men, and they took the women and many of the children captive. One of the children, hoping for clemency, took them to a cave in the hills in which they found a mammoth skull, the tattered remnants of a mammoth skin cloak, a wooden cup, and the preserved head of Atsula, the oracle. While some of the warriors of the new tribe were for taking the sacred objects away with them, stealing the gods of the first people and owning their power, others counseled against it, saying that they would bring nothing but ill luck and the malice of their own god, for these were the people of a raven tribe And ravens are jealous gods. So they threw the objects down the side of the hill into a deep ravine and took the survivors of the first people with them on their long journey south. And the raven tribes and the fox tribes grew more powerful in the land. And soon, Nanyanini was entirely forgot." Now, you might not actually know this from the two extracts that I've read so far, but um, actually, American Gods is a novel about a man called Shadow who gets out of prison and winds up working for a rather mysterious old gentleman who calls himself Wednesday and getting into all manner of trouble. And uh, this is a little section from about three-quarters of the way through the book, where he's uh, living under an assumed name in a little town in Wisconsin, and he runs into somebody who sort of knows him. Her name is Sam. He gave her a lift. Gave her a ride once much earlier. Shadow opened the garage door, and she started to laugh. Oh, my God, she said when she saw the Forerunner. Paul Gunther's car. You bought Paul Gunther's car. Oh, my God. Shadow opened the door for her. Then he went around and got in. You know the car? Oh, when I came up here two or three years ago to stay with Mags, it was me that persuaded him to paint it purple. (coughs) Oh, said Shadow, it's good to have someone to blame. (laughs) He drove the car out onto the street, got out and closed the garage door, got back into the car. Sam was looking at him oddly as he got in, as if the confidence had begun to leak out of her. He put on his seatbelt and she said, I'm scared. This was a stupid thing to do, wasn't it? Getting into a car with a psycho killer. (laughs) I got you safe home last time, said Shadow. You killed two men, she said. You're wanted by the feds, and now I find out you're living under an assumed name next door to my sister. Unless Mike Ainsell is your real name? No, said Shadow, and he sighed. It's not. He hated saying it. It was as if he was letting go of something important, abandoning Mike Ainsall by denying him, as if he were taking his leave of a friend. Did you kill those men? No. They came to my house and said, we'd been seen together, and this guy showed me photographs of you. What was his name? Mr. Hat? No, Mr. Town. That was him. It was like the fugitive. But I said I hadn't seen you. Well, thank you. So, she said, Tell me what's going on. I'll keep your secrets if you keep mine. I don't know any of yours, said Shadow. Well, you know that it was my idea to paint this thing purple, thus forcing Paul Gunther to become such an object of scorn and derision for several counties around that he was forced to leave town entirely. We were kind of stoned, she admitted. I doubt that bit of it's much of a secret, said Shadow. Everyone in Lakeside must have known it's a stoner sort of purple. (laughs) And then she said, very quiet, very fast. If you're going to kill me, please don't hurt me. I shouldn't have come here with you. I'm so dumb. I am so fucking, fucking dumb. I should have run away or called the cops when I first saw you. I can identify you. Jesus, I am so dumb. (laughs) Shadow sighed. I've never killed anybody. Really. Now I'm going to turn. Now I'm going to take you to the buck, he said, or if you give the word, I'll turn this car around and take you home. I'll buy you a drink if you're actually old enough to drink, and I'll buy you a soda if you're not. And I'll take you back to Marguerite, deliver you safe and sound, and hope you aren't going to call the cops. There was silence as they crossed the bridge. Who did kill those men? She asked. You wouldn't believe me if I told you. I would, she sounded angry now. He wondered if bringing the wine to the dinner had been a wise idea. Life was certainly not a Cabernet right now. It's a bumper sticker they see earlier in the chapter. It's not easy to believe. I, she told him, can believe anything. You have no idea what I can believe. Really? I can believe in things that are true, and I can believe things that aren't true, and I can believe things where nobody knows if they're true or not. I can believe in Santa Claus, and the Easter Bunny, and Marilyn Monroe, and the Beatles, and Elvis, and Mr. Ed, and listen, I believe that people are perfectible, that knowledge is infinite, that the world is run by secret banking cartels and is visited by aliens on a regular basis. Nice ones that look like wrinkly lemurs and bad ones who mutilate cattle and want our water and our women. I believe that the future sucks and I believe that the future rocks and I believe that one day white buffalo woman is going to come back and kick everyone's ass. I believe that all men are just overgrown boys with deep problems communicating and that the decline in good sex in America is coincident with the decline in drive-in movie theaters from state to state. I believe that all politicians are unprincipled crooks, and I still believe they're better than the alternative. I believe that California is going to sink into the sea when the big one comes, while Florida is just going to dissolve into madness and alligators and toxic waste. (laughs) I believe that antibacterial soap is destroying our resistance to dirt and disease so that one day we'll all be wiped out by the common cold like the Martians in the War of the Worlds. I believe that the greatest poets of the last century were Edith Sitwell and Don Marquis, that jade is dried dragon sperm, that thousands of years ago in a former life I was a one-armed Siberian shaman. I believe that mankind's destiny lies in the stars. I believe that candy really did taste better when I was a kid, that it's aerodynamically impossible for a bumblebee to fly, that light is a wave and a particle, that there's a cat in a box somewhere who's alive and dead at the same time. Although if they don't ever open the box to feed it, it'll eventually just be two different kinds of dead. (laughs) And that there are stars in the universe, billions of years older than the universe itself. I believe in a personal God who cares about me and worries and oversees everything I do. I believe in an impersonal God who set the universe in motion and went off to hang with her girlfriends and doesn't even know that I'm alive. I believe in an empty and godless universe of causal chaos, background noise, and sheer blind luck. I believe that anyone who says that sex is overrated just hasn't done it properly. (laughs) I believe that anyone who claims to know what's going on will lie about the little things too. I believe in absolute honesty and sensible social lies. I believe in a woman's right to choose, a baby's right to live, that while all human life is sacred, there's nothing wrong with the death penalty if you can trust the legal system implicitly, and that no one but a moron would ever trust the legal system. (laughs) I believe that life is a game, life is a cruel joke, and that life is what happens when you're alive and that you might as well lie back and enjoy it. She stopped, out of breath. Shadow almost took his hands off the wheel to applaud. Instead, he said, Okay, so if I tell you what I've learned, you won't think that I'm a nut. Maybe, she said. Try me. Would you believe that all the gods that people have ever imagined are still with us today? Maybe? And that there are new gods out there, gods of computers and telephones and whatever, and that they all seem to think there isn't room for them both in the world, and that some kind of war is kind of likely. And these gods killed those two men. No, my wife killed those two men. I thought you said your wife was dead. She is. She killed them before she died then. After. (laughs) Don't ask. (laughs) She reached up a hand and flicked her hair from her forehead. They pulled up on Main Street, outside the buck stops here. The sign over the window showed a surprised looking stag standing on its hind legs, holding a glass of beer. Shadow got out. He grabbed the bag with the book in it and got out. Why would they have a war? Asked Sam. It seems kind of redundant. What is there to win? I don't know, admitted Shadow. It's easier to believe in aliens than in gods, said Sam. Maybe Mr. Town and Mr. Whatever were men in black, only the alien kind. Maybe they were at that, said Shadow. They were standing on the sidewalk outside the buck stops here, and Sam stopped. She looked up at Shadow, and her breath hung on the night air like a faint cloud. She said, just tell me you're one of the good guys. I can't, said Shadow. I wish I could, but I'm doing my best.
0: together anymore Let me take a
1: deep breath, babe If you need me, me and me will be Hanging out with the dream king You should hide by the way
0: I don't believe you're leaving Cause me and Charles Mentioned like the same ice cream that's Neil Gaiman from Writers on a New England Stage. I'm Virginia Prescott. In just a moment, Neil Gaiman answers questions from me and the audience about his process, Latter-day Gods, the power of story, and the perplexing question of which is better Star Wars or Star Trek. That's more Neil Gaiman from Writers on a New England Stage when word of mouth returns after this short break.
1: Oh, I am. Oh,
0: Well, Neil Gaiman from Portsmouth, Old Hampshire. Welcome
1: to Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Thank you. It's true, I've been getting getting these uh, these sad little Twitters from people in the other Portsmouth for the last few weeks. Every time they see, I'm saying, yes, I'll be in Portsmouth. And they go, yes, well, oh, wrong, Portsmouth.
0: They don't have a submarine, do they?
1: Um, Not one just sort of sitting there (laughs) randomly. (laughs) They don't have the albacore.
0: Well, as you're looking back 10 years after writing American Gods, how do you think the book has aged?
1: I have absolutely no idea. Um, I get to be... It's kind of like with, with... George Harrison once was asked about The Beatles. And um, he said, you have to understand that I'm the only person, I'm one of the the only four people for whom the Beatles didn't happen during the 60s. (laughs) Um, I have no idea what it was like to read Sandman when it was coming out, because I was writing Sandman. And I have no idea how American Gods has has aged, because for me, it's still this thing that in in some ways, I'm still sitting in a borrowed house in... um, in Florida, I borrowed a house from my friend Tori Amos, and I just, um, yay! Um, and I hid out there and and wrote, and that was where I got the, you know, the first third of it was written there, and um, all I remember was the sheer bloody-minded fury of trying to get one word after another. Of what would happen when I get stuck? Um, The the Coming to America stories were actually my way, in many ways, of of getting around writer's block, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a posh term for getting stuck on the stuff that you're writing. So when I wasn't sure what Shadow was going to do next, um, and everybody was just had stopped moving in the text, I'd write one of those little short stories. And by the time I came back to it, I'd sort of probably figured out where I'd gone wrong and what needed to happen next in the story.
0: We have several questions from uh, the audience about how you get
1: through writer's block. So... How do I get through writer's block? I get through writer's block... um, First of all, I really don't believe in it. Really don't. I think writers are really clever. You have to understand, we are so clever that that we got to come up with a special term for getting stuck or not doing very well that nobody else has. Radio broadcasters do not have radio broadcasters mm. block. You're not allowed to come in and say, today I cannot talk, I'm sorry, the words are not there. Um, shoe salesmen, no shoe salesmen block. Gardeners do not have gardeners block. Cellists do not have cellists block, but writers, because we're clever, <laughs> have writer's block. Because it's so much fancier than saying, I'm stuck. Story's not really going anywhere, I don't know what to do. I have writer's block, yes. Leave me alone. I shall drink tea and contemplate the infinite. You know, it's not, it'd be lovely. Um, So what I tend to do is one of two things when I have writer's block. Um, Thing one is I always like to have more than one thing on the go, Um, whether it's, you know, an introduction that I ought to be writing, whether it's a short story, whether it's, um, you know, a script, I like having something else so that when I get stuck, I can just go and work on the thing that I'm not stuck on. You're not really, you know, writer's block. If somebody had real writer's block, they wouldn't send you emails grumbling about having writer's block. (laughs) There would be no words, but the words are there. Um, So that's thing number one that I'll do. And thing number two that I'll do, which is really no fun and a very dispiriting thing to do, but it does kind of work, is you write anyway. And writing on days when it's stuck and it's bad is horrible. It's like writing through a headache. You just, every word seems stupid, every phrase is lousy, and you probably, you know, if in a normal day you manage to do a thousand words, let's say, this day you do 200 words and you think they're all stupid. Except that the next day you come in and you look at what you did and you move a, comma around and delete a line and change something and you have a perfectly usable 200 words um, it's, it's and, and what really gets strange is then a year later you finish the book you're now reading through like the galleys they've sent you to, to copy edit And you can remember that there were days when you wrote and it was magical and you wrote as if diamonds were dripping from your fingers and you were inspired and the gods were talking through you. And you remember there were days when you pushed through horrible writer's block and it was all awful. But you can't actually find them on the page. Um, You know they're there. But actually it all reads like it was written by the same person. For good or for bad, it reads like it was written by the same person.
0: Well, you said backstage, that backstage, not the one with, you know, skulls. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, and you say in the book, in the introduction to the 10th edition, that you're considering, you know, maybe an American Gods too. And I'm wondering now, I mean, th- th- I was struck by how prescient it seemed in some ways, one of the agents was talking about you know, freedom fighters and terrorism, and that's something that... This book came out months before September 11th, 2001.
1: It was actually kind of disturbing because uh, it was published on the 19th of June, 2001, we, we, which was a Tuesday. Books have to be published on Tuesdays for arcane reasons that I do not understand. So. <laughs> We couldn't actually have the anniversary publication 19 years after. It had to be on a Tuesday. So it's the 21st, which was the summer solstice, which was really nice. But um, the 19th of June, I did a signing on a Tuesday in Borders Books in the World Trade Center. Mm. And the signing tour was very long. And it took me from all across America and then to the UK and all across the UK. And then I did Canada. And then I came home. And two days after I came home, there was no borders. Wow. Um, So it definitely felt, and it was one of those huge events which actually felt like I'd kind of been writing about it. The fact that I'd done a a chapter about an Arab feeling lost in New York um, and the culture clash felt peculiarly prescient. It didn't feel dated. Um, But yes, I definitely wanted to do more. I definitely felt like the story of Shadow that is the book American Gods, had not finished.
0: So what would it look like in this post-9-11 world?
1: Um, there's definitely going to be... I, in my head, and to some extent even in reality, there is a large box in which I'm putting stuff that's going to go into American Gods number two. Mm. And, um, you know, it's got, and there's really weird stuff I don't know that the albacore is going to go in there, really. (laughs) Um, I say that and then, you know, you're going to see it disappearing off down under the ground. Um, But finding there's there's definitely more strange American things Mm -hmm. that I've found. And wherever possible, I try and keep it incredibly real. The number of things that I made up in American Gods is surprisingly small. and again, for, for I, I think American Gods number two is going to have um, a lot more about the new gods, a mm. lot more about the weird cutting edge of technology stuff. Yeah. Um, I think I want to write about attention spans, and shorter and more minute attention spans, the, the upside and the downside of, of things like Twitter. Um, I want to write about the peculiar nature of community and the upside and downside of that as well in in this sort of electronic age. I love the fact that you can have communities which consists of people who have never met in the flesh, Mm. but they are real communities. Um, But I'm also fascinated by the downside of that. There there was a point, I was talking to Lev Grossman last night. He asked me about um, Twitter and was talking about the the power and the coolness of Twitter I was saying yes well it it is wonderful up to a point and then it completely stops and I told him about how I'd gone off I'd actually done that thing recently that I did 10 years ago I would borrowed a house from a friend in Florida gone down there um, was, was writing away just getting stuff done off the grid and I'd been there for about almost two weeks and was feeling kind of lonely. It's just me on my own. I'm being pathetically nice to the people at the supermarket checkout counter because they're the only, only human beings I run into. Um, that was why I grew the beard. You know, There were no human beings around to be revolted by that weird period <laughs> when the beard isn't quite a beard yet, when I look faintly Neanderthal. Um, so it was one of the last nights there, and I just tweeted something about, you know, going to bed now, got a lot of writing done, it's really lonely, or feeling fairly lonely, or something like that. And somebody Twittered back to me, and they said, how can you be lonely with 1.6 million Twitter <laughs> followers? <laughs> and, and I wrote a reply to him, and then I deleted it, because I thought, no, I'm not going to send that to him, and it seems kind of mean, and it, I don't know that he'd actually understand what I'm saying. But the reply to him simply said, Make me a cup of tea. <laughs> <And> <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you do have 1.6 million Twitter followers and I noticed that some of them get really panicked if you haven't tweeted in, in a, a couple of hours. But you use them for reactions, you, know, you f- throw things by them, you talk about things that you're doing, you get a lot of two-way response, which is so different from my image of you writing american gods you know for whatever reason my picture is you know dark room grinding out the work of a novel I'm, endless I'm, cups of coffee
1: i'm i'm sure it'll be like that for you know but for american it... gods too i may well take myself completely off twitter for example the people will know that i'm writing cuz i'm not there they can worry about me <laughs> it'll be great <laughs> And I'll have told them that they can yell at me if I come on Twitter. So anybody, if I actually do come on Twitter, everyone will go, go back to work. And I'll type, oops, and then I'll go back and work.
0: You could just have them endlessly making applaud sounds or something (laughs) like that, too. Well, American Gods gave so many people an introduction to all of these varied pantheons of gods you know, old world gods. You know, I looked up Balder for the first time ever, you know, and and refreshed myself on a number of them. So if they they are fading because of our lack of belief, did you throw them a lifeline?
1: You know, um, there's a very odd level on which I think maybe I kind of did.
0: I'm sorry, Um, but this question is just so funny. Who is the god in American Gods that no one can remember? See? You know, it's,
1: it, I'm really sorry. It's been 10 years since I wrote that book, honestly.
0: <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't mean to get you off track, but I just yep. found that so funny.
1: But I, 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 the, going back to the thing on gods <laughs> and, um, and whether I did throw them a lifeline, I love that every now and then, these days, I will have changed things just a little with American gods. Just because now, you know, 10 years after it was published, it's been read by X number of million people, and once X number of million people have read things, things change. Um, People now like to give me a rough time. They say, well, everybody knows that Easter is named after Easter. I say, yeah, but they really didn't 11 years ago. Hmm. That's something that kind of, it's, you know, the fact that it's actually named after a pagan goddess is something, that's where the name of the festival comes from, probably, um, yes. is, is something <laughs> that was not, it really wasn't in wide currency. But the book went out there, and then lots of people read the book, and then other people write their books, and they write newspaper articles, and it becomes, in, it moves into wider currency. Um, but truthfully, I think the, the fundamental... Um, mythological and cultural underpinnings of American gods haven't changed. Mm. Particularly if they had, I don't think it would be in print 10 years later. It wouldn't be a book that's just getting its 10th anniversary edition because it wouldn't be as relevant. Um, I wrote it as an immigrant. I wrote it as an English person coming to America, finding out to my surprise that it was filled with weird American stuff. And I, I'd really thought that I understood America because I'd watched lots of American TV <laughs> and I'd read lots of American books and I figured I had a handle on America I came out here, came out to the Midwest and it was weird. Hmm. <laughs> and it was that weird that I wanted to get in. But, one of the, but there was a specifically weird sort of cultural thing that absolutely fascinated me, which was the difference between somewhere like England and somewhere like Canada, somewhere like America, for the people coming into it. Mm-hmm. Um, the feeling that, you know, when, in Canada, they talk about the mosaic. They talk about cultural mosaic, that the Canadian mosaic, that you are coming from the Philippines or from China, you're coming from Greece or from Latvia, mm-hmm. and you are contributing a little color, a little thing to the mosaic that is Canada. And in America, you have the metaphor of the melting pot—the right. thing that gets you get thrown in, you come out American. Um, and the to... idea that, you're, you're, that there are things that you are expected to give up, and one of those things is the weird sort of cultural baggage, the mythological baggage that you brought to this country. Um, have you ever heard of the Jack stories?
0: The Jacks.
1: Jack stories. The, the Jack stories are fascinating. They, they're, they're stories that were told in England and brought to America, mm. where they continue to be told in Appalachia, in the Appalachians, um, and were collected in, I think, 1910, 1920, r- folklore, where the first round of folklore researchers went into Appalachia and started getting people to tell them stories, and they discovered they had all of these stories about someone called Jack, who was very clever, And that these were the same stories that were told in England 500 years ago that gave us things like Jack and the Beanstalk and Jack the Giant Killer and stuff. Same stories about a smart young man named Jack who goes out and has adventures. Except the American versions had no magic in them. The English versions were filled with magical giants and transformations and shape-changing and beans that would take you up to the sky. And the American versions were as if they told the stories and everyone went, we don't believe in that. (laughs) And so they took it all out, and they're they're still funny, brilliant stories, but they had no magic in them. Hmm. And and that fascinated me, the idea that maybe you had a country that in many, many ways was just practical, that where- The market would take care of it. Yeah, exactly. Very, very much so.
0: Well, is that why there's a point uh, where Wednesday tells Shadow that this is the only country in the world that worries about what it is? You know, nobody goes searching for the heart of Norway or the soul of Mozambique the way that we have made a rite of passage in some way, searching for the soul of America. And is that what's missing, the magic?
1: You know, Actually, I I would footnote that by saying I somehow... I've started to suspect these days that maybe Australians are trying to figure out what Australia is in very much the same way that well, Americans similar, are trying to, uh, but it's a very similar, similar country. It has that thing of, yeah. you know, things the, that the started out The place for second as, chances. Yeah. And as countries of immigrants trying to figure out what they are and what they are with, you know, native people who were sort of rather ridden roughshod over um, mm-hmm. and, and what that means. Um, yeah, I think it probably does in an answer to your previous question.
0: Right, because Mr. Ibis, one of the things he Is it Ibis, Ibis? I, I don't know say how ibis, you say it. But um, one of his, his entries is that American history is fictional. You know, it's this charcoal sketch. Yeah. So well, that,
1: that actually began... That, that came out of... I mean, that came out of my son coming home from school one day. And he was about, about 12 years old at the time. He came home from school, was sitting there at dinner... And in that way that 12-year-old boys like to sort of drop things into the conversation, he says, my teacher says you're a liar. <laughs> and, and I said, oh, really? He says, yes. And I said, well, why am I a liar? He says, well, you know that thing that you told us about how people were sent to America and on transportation, um, if they stole things like sheep or money, and they weren't going to be hanged, they'd send them to America for like 10 years or something until they, and they could come back, and it was like a prison out here. And I said, "Yeah." He said, "My teacher says that's not true, and the only people who came to America were seeking freedom." <laughs> and, and I thought that's absolutely fascinating—the idea that this kid's history teacher has this wonderful little Disney sketch of, in her head, of what happened. that There's no relationship to what happened. Um, You know, this idea that, no, the, what happened, everybody knows what happened. The history of America is pilgrims came over seeking religious freedom. They founded America on religious freedom. Then they threw tea into the harbor, (laughs) proclaimed, you know, and you're sort of going, well, actually, that's not true. it's, it's so much more interesting and complicated, and there's all sorts of shades of gray, and there's stuff going on. Um, so that was actually, again, part of the fun for me of writing some of those Coming to America's. Mm-hmm. The one of the Essie Tregowan story, oh, where she comes story. from Cornwall, um, was, was basically because I spent about a year with my bedside reading being um, the Nougat Chronicles, mm-hmm. which are just these stories of people um, sentenced either to hanging or transportation mostly and uh, and loving these weird stories and thinking well i'll write one of those but i'll also write one for people like my son's teacher who <laughs> maybe if she reads it she'll learn that
0: well it's so much a book about the the nature of belief for one thing but also the power of stories you know how um, um, Henselman is so proud of the Lakeside Library and says, story books are gold dust. And um, I'm trying to think of, we have a question I think from a librarian who asked about that. who said, can you talk about what libraries have meant for you as a writer and about a librarian who has made a difference for you and why?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, when I was, when I was a kid And by kid, I guess I mean age about six onwards. Definitely from about the point I I turned about eight or nine. Um, I would get my parents to drop me off at our local library on their way to work, and I would, in my summer holidays, and I would just head into the children's library. I would grab the card index, because it had this gorgeous card index, which didn't just list books by, by name, but it also had subjects. So I could go, I want to read about witches, and I'd find all of the books that had witches in them, and I'd just sit there reading mm. my way through every witch in the library or every ghost.
0: Well, do you have um, a lot of hope for the future of books?
1: I have huge hope for the future of books and huge hope for the future of libraries. Um, you know, I mean, they were talking about li- the the librarian who was helpful. the the, the actual town librarian um, was absolutely wonderful. And I went to talk to him once because I couldn't figure out where to find the Alfred Hitchcock Presents: The Three Investigators books and who'd actually written them, and <laughs> whether it was by a whether they should be under H for Hitchcock because they didn't seem to be. And it turned out they were written by somebody else. So they were. And Then he started telling me about the the power of the interlibrary loan. Mm. (laughs) Um, Which, when you are ten, and you are me, (laughs) the discovery that you can get any book in England (laughs) through the power of interlibrary loan, it's like being given the keys to Fort Knox. You know, you have, or, or, or more than that, it's like being, you know, a proper supervillain with your own octopus pit and the button. You have, you have the button. This is the ultimate power. All knowledge is now yours, and you can go to them and you can say, um, you know, all those Gilbert and Sullivan plays that actually are like they never performed things like *Thespis* and, and stuff, but we have them. Can you get me a book with them in? And they'll go, yes. <laughs> and you say, really? And they say, yes. And then two weeks later, you get a call. Your book is here. And you go and read it. And it's bound in green. And it came from somewhere unlikely, like South End on Sea. And it went by the magic of li- interlibrary loan all the way to you. Um, I, I worry that... Um, I don't worry about... Libraries being made redundant by ebooks and things like that. I, you know, I, I, which I think people do. but I worry about people not actually understanding the function of a library, both as a space that people can go, mm-hmm. as a repository of knowledge, um, and as a resource that contains librarians. <laughs> because um, <clears throat> You know, last year, I, got, I had the enormous honor of being the spokesman, the honorary spokesman for National Library Week. And it really was an honor. And I remember being, and suddenly found myself having to do interviews, explaining libraries to people and defending libraries to people. And, and I remember somebody sticking a microphone in my face and saying, we have the internet, why do we need libraries? And I, I and it was one of those... It was one of those strange, scary moments where you go, I don't actually have a prepared answer for this. And I said, Look, Google will bring you back 100 million answers. A librarian will bring you back the correct one. And, um, And that's true. You know, librarians, people think of them as people who put books back on shelves, and that's not what they do. Librarians know stuff. They are, they, are, they are guardians of knowledge. They're like these sort of you know, heroes in, in science fiction novels after, after the end times have come and there's one lone guy <laughs> who's guarding the knowledge. One lone woman. She's got the stuff. And uh, that's what librarians do.
0: Well, um, speaking of story, you've, you've re- you reimagined the Sandman. Originally, that wasn't your character. You uh, rewrote a screenplay for Beowulf. And I'm wondering about that experience. You do, you just recently wrote the episode for Doctor Who, or it recently aired. <laughs> Perhaps some of the people
1: here have heard of Doctor you Who. Know, I, I, I just
0: wonder what it's like to write for a character that's already sort of created, instead of making up one of your own.
1: Well, Sandman really wasn't created. What, I, what they yeah. gave me was the name. You're right. So just that was outline. kind of fun. I had, I, no, just the name, Sandman. Okay, you know, make your own up. We own it It's the name. We've had it since 1939.: You make a, up a green salmon. suit? you made another one. <laughs> so I made another one up. Um, but Doctor Who was wonderful. Um, I was oh, thank you. I, I, and you have to understand that for me, um, people talk to me, something like American gods, they say, "Whoa, you must love mythology." And I say, "Yes, I really do love mythology. I love mythology. When I was seven. My favorite book, I bought it with my own money, was Tales of Ancient Egypt, and I would learned all about the Egyptian gods, and, and I had a copy of Roger Lancelin Green's book, Tales of the Norsemen, and I learned all about the Norse gods, and this, this was what I loved when I was seven, and this was, you know, mythology was so important. But then I point out to them that I started watching Doctor Who when I was about three and a half going on four. And, <laughs> Long before I knew who Anubis was, or Osiris, or, or Odin, or Loki, I knew that TARDIS stood for you know, time and relative dimension in space, that, 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 <laughs> the, that the Daleks came from the planet Skaro. Um, I, I had a copy of this wonderful book called The Dalek World, which was this Wonderful comic and text thing and I studied it. I would read it over and over. I still have my copy and it's just falling to pieces The cover is gone Uh, But it's marvelous and from it. I learned that Daleks couldn't see the color red Which disturbed me um, (laughs) Because there were red Daleks And I would worry about them Uh, You know so, I, so it, Doctor Who was part of my personal mythology, which meant that, you know, 40 ump years later, um, 45, 46 years later, when I'm talking with, with Stephen Moffat, the current Doctor Who Supremo, um, about writing an episode, I'm, I was as happy as it was possible to be. Mm. Um, <laughs> And, you know, I got to, to the, the feeling of sheer power. When I wrote that script, the first time I wrote the words, interior TARDIS, <laughs> control room, and I thought, this must be how God feels like this. you have the power. Um, so well, I, 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 lo- I loved doing it. And I also have to say, I thought the BBC did so right by me on that episode, it, it got, you know, it, it got bounced from season five to season six just because they didn't quite have enough money to do it well. And they were determined, they, they loved the script and they were determined to do it justice, and they did.
0: We're running very short on time, so I'm gonna okay. try and ask you some let's questions do, let's, quickly. I'll do short, short okay. answers. Okay, all right. Um,
1: okay.
0: Star Trek or Star Wars? Trek. You have to keep your applause quick. Um, Favorite book
1: ever? Don't ask evil questions. (laughs) (laughs) Who are you reading right now? Um, Who am I reading right now? I'm just actually not not reading it right now because I actually have a blurb on the cover which meant that I read it six months ago. But the book that I was reading today on the plane, even though I'd read it already, before handing it over as a present to Joe Hill was Alina Simone's Hilarious set of essays called You Must Go and Win, Mm. and just so funny and so perceptive.
0: She's a brilliant musician as well. Um, Sushi, Yellowtail or Tuna? Yellowtail. Red Sox or Yankees?
1: Um, (laughs) As an Englishman, (laughs) I am excused. It's awesome.
0: Okay. Gods or space
1: aliens? Oh, gods, every time. Of course. But I mean, I mean, and, and truthfully, I love aliens. You know, I was a science fiction kid as a, you know, I, I loved SF, and I'm absolutely with Sam on heading out into the stars. I wish we'd get on with it. Um, <laughs> but gods, every time.
0: Okay. Heads or tails? Heads. Ooh. Do you have one of those two-sided coins? No, or but is it I all do. A I coin? don't have a
1: two-sided coin, but I do have a um, the the 1921 Liberty Head dollar uh-huh. that I talk about in, in the book. In the book, and somebody gave me um, a silver dollar as I was writing it, and so I would practice doing coin tricks, and uh, I, I tried to make it so that if I was writing a coin trick for shadow, I had at least done it enough that I could sort of do it. And, and the saddest thing about the 10 years that has passed between writing American Gods and now, is now I am a fumble-fingered mess and will probably drop a coin. And back then, I could actually, mm. I, and it was great for interviews. Because well, people it's... would say, well, can you do coin tricks? And i go, well, I can go there. And people go, how did he do that? It is magic. <laughs> we must burn him as a warlock. And I go, no, no, it's still here.
0: <laughs> oh. I was going to ask you, but they kind of lose their luster on radio, unfortunately. All right. Uh, Look, p- everyone
1: on radio. See this coin? It's gone.
0: <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> Can you please sing The Problem With Saints?
1: No, but... Um, the Problem With Saints is a song that was written with this mad project I did with Ben Folds, Damien Kulash, and Amanda Palmer right, called right? Apen Um, And it was a song that we wrote and that I sang um, about the problem with Joan of Arc, specifically Returning from the Dead. Um, (laughs) And I'm actually kind of terrified because I am going to try and sing it in public on the radio. Uh, Minnesota Public Radio does a show called Wits, which this Friday is going to be streamed, so you can watch the web broadcast of it And one of the things that theoretically will happen during Wits, starring me and Josh Ritter, is that I will sing The Problem Uh, with Saints. And of course, but you really do want to go for the live stream one, because if I'm absolutely rubbish, it won't be on the broadcast. (laughs) What time? Um, Friday evening. So uh, I think it starts probably about nine o'clock Eastern time.
0: Well, I'm wondering, you know, the the storm foretold throughout the Book of American Gods finally comes. And Shadow sort of realizes as he's about to address all these assembled gods that it is about belief. It is rock solid belief that makes things happen. And I wonder what you believe in that makes things happen for you. Why do you do what you do?
1: I believe that stories are important. I believe that people. Are important and I believe that people deserve stories Um, and that's that's true the true posh and noble answer Um, but I do what I do because honestly I have absolutely no other skills (laughs) Um, I I, I'm somebody you do not want me driving your taxi (laughs) Um, if you think my nice limo driver got us lost on the way here, I would have done it a thousand times better. I still wouldn't be here. Um, you do not want me putting up shelves. You, do n- you definitely do not want me administering your hedge fund. You would have the emptiest hedge of all hedges. Um, I, you know, what I, what, I was, what I was put here for, what I do really well is, is I make stuff up. When I was a little kid, adults would say to me, you're making stuff up. And they'll say, you made that up, didn't you? And they'd say, that's not true. And they'd say, Neil, you know what will happen if you keep making things up. And I didn't. <laughs> and, and they never told me. And eventually, what I learned would happen was this. You get a beautiful theater, wonderful interviewer, and a great audience. And... and Well,
0: I want to let everybody know that if you, if you want to sort of share your afterglow from listening to Neil tonight, uh, there's a hashtag, NeilNNH, I-N-N-H, and please join me in giving a warm and exuberant thank you to Neil Gaiman.
1: Thank you. Thank you. you lot awesome.
0: I bet you think that's pretty clever.
1: Don't you buy Flying on your motorcycle, watching all ground
0: beneath Neil Gaiman, writer, filmmaker, and multimedia sensation. He's the author of the Sandman series of comics the film Coraline, and the Hugo, Stoker, and Nebula award-winning novel American Gods, now out in a 10th anniversary edition with the author's preferred text. He joined me for the Writers on a New England Stage series, a partnership of New Hampshire Public Radio and the Music Hall in Portsmouth in collaboration with River Run Books. The executive producer and live stage presentation director is Patricia Lynch. NHPR's president is Betsy Gardella. Associate producer is Tom Holbrook of Riverrun Bookstore. Associate producer and director of strategic communications for the Music Hall is Margaret Talcott. Broadcast producer is Rebecca Lavoie. Live sound and recording engineer is Mike Marshand. The musical director and the band for the stage production is Bob Lord and Dreadnought. A special thanks to Taylor Quimby for this broadcast, which was made possible by New Hampshire's Heinemann Publishing. Transformative resources for today's teachers and tomorrow's leaders. To read the live blog or tweets from this event, search the hashtag NH I'm Virginia Prescott. This is Word of Mouth from New Hampshire Public Radio. All your insights fall to pieces You just sit there wishing You could still make love